Welcome to Grow Your Influence, leadership conversations for business owners and managers. Whether you own a business and have a team, or leadership is part of your role, welcome, you're exactly where you need to be. Join co-hosts Juliet Robinson and Christy Lee Billet for their regular conversations on all things leadership. No corporate jargon, no textbook ideologies, just real life experience unpacked in a relaxed way to help you be your best boss and lead your team with confidence, clarity, and control. This is Grow Your Influence. Let's dive in. Hey there, it's Christy Lee here and welcome to the latest episode of the Grow Your Influence podcast, a series of interviews, our summer series here on the podcast, where we've been having conversations with leaders, leadership experts and thought leaders on leadership over the summer and we're bringing you some of those conversations right here on the podcast. Now in today's episode, we're bringing you a conversation that Juliet actually had with Natalie Eggleton, who is the CEO of the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal. It's quite a mouthful, <laughs> FRRR, Rural and Regional Renewal. Now, Nat's been at the helm of this organization as the CEO since 2015, and this organization has been at the forefront of responses to the bushfires and floods that have impacted so many communities across rural and regional Australia, and in fact, not only rural and regional Australia. She's had a focus on capacity building and has grown the organisation really significantly throughout COVID lockdowns and all the other challenges that the last few years have thrown at us. So she's leading a hybrid team who are spread up and down the east coast of Australia and right across through into WA. And in today's conversation that her and Juliet had, she shares insights into the challenges of keeping people connected when working remotely. And I know that is a challenge that so many of our listeners have had. So really keen to hear Nat's insights on these um, and also valuable insights around leading authentically and using power, influence and authority throughout her leadership. So this is a fabulous conversation and we can't wait to bring it to you. So please welcome Natalie Eggleton, CEO of the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal to the podcast. Hello and welcome to our interview series. Today I'm talking with Nat Eggleton, who's the CEO of the Foundation for Rural and Regional Renewal. Uh, Nat, welcome. Hello. It's lovely to have you here. And I'm really excited about this conversation because I have been following what you do for a few years now. And I just, I think the changes I see and the development of FRRR, as it's called, have been fantastic. So I really, I really wanted to talk to you about what leadership looks like in your world. Uh, you've been with FRRR since 2012 and you've been the CEO since 2015. Can you just take us through how you got to where you are now? I can. Um, so I've always worked in the not-for-profit sector, apart from a, um, a brief stint in the corporate world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've I've always been really interested in um, organisational capacity building has been kind of the thing that lights me up, um, and particularly around not-for-profits. And so that's been my career, has been various versions of that, fundraising, marketing, I've typically been in the background of organisations rather than frontline. Um, And I grew up in Melbourne, uh, had sort of always had a bit of a draw to rural areas. So I've typically worked with smaller not-for-profit organisations and often in rural context. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was always a bit of a natural fit for me. And for some reason, it just clicked that I sort of understood um, 
you know, just how small places work uh, and what needs to happen and, and the kind of really varied and dynamic role that not-for-profits play in that context. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, my husband and I, decided to move to the country um, whenever that was, 2010, um, and that was just after the Victorian Black Saturday, Black Saturday bushfires, um, and we lived in an area that was quite close to the impact there. So we had, a, I guess, a... Um, an experience of natural disasters as well at that time, which I didn't realise would come into play um, as significantly as it would. Um, but when we moved up to, to Castlemaine at that time, we were now in Malden, um, I went on maternity leave for a year and kind of immersed in the community and thought about, I'd been in consulting before that, working with small not-for-profits um, in organisational development, so it was a bit of a dream job. Uh, but that wasn't feasible with two kids under two. So... Um, a role actually came up with FRRR during that time, which was a full-time program manager role. Uh, and uh, I couldn't work full-time, but it was it was a combination of um, running FRRR's natural disaster recovery portfolio uh, with a significant focus on the Black Saturday bushfire recovery. Um, so that was a kind of a bit of a calling, uh, as well as running um, the small grants programs that FRRR delivered. So FRRR was much smaller then. I don't know, there would have been eight staff or something like that. Yeah. Um, and that really launched you in at the deep end, though. Yes, yeah, it did, yeah. So, in fact, um, a friend and I, who we'd met on the train when we were pregnant, applied for that job as a job share and oh, got it. Yeah. Um, so that was a bit of a, you know, innovation moment going, hang on a minute, we've both got these complementary skills. Um so we, we tackled it that way um, and I took on the disaster recovery portfolio and she took on the small grants portfolio, wow. um, which was, yeah, it was never um, never a job just one person could have done anyway <laughs> once I we got that's it and realised. the thing, isn't it, when you look at it and you say, actually, we could do this better if we both mm. were part of it. Yeah, yeah. So that was a lovely um you know, a lovely opportunity to do that together and then that it was supported by FRRR and we were both employed mm. um, and then that evolved pretty quickly and, and changed, a, you know, both parts of it became bigger uh, yeah. and we kind of separated it into two separate roles and both increased our capacity, that sort of thing, as we could yeah. with our little ones. Um, so that was a, a kind of, that was how I arrived at FRRR and did that work um, and really, really learnt an enormous amount about the way that communities and not-for-profit organisations, um, you know, lead and um, play really critical but quite unrecognised roles in um, really dynamic environments like disaster recovery. Um, and I've had, you know, the great, great delight and honour to meet amazing people through that and learn from amazing people and, and continue to hold many of those relationships and networks. Um, and then in 2015, uh, the CEO at the time, um, you know, a bit unexpectedly took a new opportunity, uh, which opened a, an opportunity for the CEO role at FRRR, which I really had no intention of going for and had never been in my um, plan to yeah. become CEO. Um, I quite liked being in the background and I quite liked being a 2IC. We've talked about myself being a great support act. You know, that was, um, yeah. that was where I thought I, I could add the most value. Um, but I had several people sort of tap me on the shoulder and say, you should at least think about it. Um, and I was appointed acting CEO anyway, um, and through that time decided to take the leap and throw my hat in the ring for the role. It's so interesting, isn't it, how we see ourselves and then other people sort of say, well, give it a shot. 
mm. things in us we don't always see in ourselves yeah and there was I think a gendered element to that as a young woman I was yeah. um what was I <laughs> what less than 40 I wasn't even 40 yet oh. um, I was in my yeah. late 30s and you know as I said I, I thought being a support act was where I um, performed best but I had never taken that leap um and it's a really scary one because yeah. you know as a, a younger woman um I think we we think that leadership requires a certain level of expertise and if we don't have it all we don't think we should do it and that was the space I was in I've certainly learned better than that since yeah oh, yeah I think you're 100 percent right we so often count ourselves out of things because we think we don't have 100 percent of what it takes yeah yeah and no one ever does that's what I've no. learned and that's yes. okay but yes. yes we should women in particular um yeah have have that challenge as a kind of mental block yeah no I think you're absolutely right so you I mean this focus on capacity building I see it everywhere with what FRR is doing and you've grown the organization significantly since 2015 how, how have you found that process and the, the process of sort of growing your team to be a much larger team yeah well we've got just under 40 people now um so and that I've put in place a leadership group in the last couple of years, which we've had, you know, versions of over time, but never a group. Um, and certainly the work has increased and become more nuanced and complex. We used to be a, you know, there's a quite simple terms, but it used to be a fairly transactional grant maker. Community groups would apply, we would, you know, administer grant programs. Um, and over time, we've recognised that there's actually a whole bunch of knowledge, capital, and the networks and relationships that we've built over time are uh, embedded with a, a trust that enables us to actually act as the bridge between communities and other, other sort of support networks, like whether it's government funding or other philanthropy funding, but also the capacity building work, as you've noted. Yeah. So the, the team sort of needed to, to grow with that as well. We needed to invest in our own capacity mm. um, and actually value that contribution that we could make. So the growth in the team has been about that in part, in, in about actually um, recognising that we're not just administrators, we're partners with communities and we need to invest the time in those relationships and therefore you need capacity. Um, and then we've actually scaled up and um, I say to the board sometimes, growth through crisis is not ideal and that's kind of what's happened for FRRR in terms of responding to drought, responding to fires, responding to floods. Um, and so a lot of the, the growth that has been visible in the last few years has been in that context of helping communities to adapt to impacts, things that are impacting them. Um, but we have also um, developed some new initiatives that have got, um, you know, a bit more of a forward-looking focus. Which is um, yeah. And, and and it's presumably a different skill set too. When you're just a grant maker, well, not just a grant maker, but when you're a grant maker, that is much more transactional. This, this building relationships in the community takes a different skill set. It really does, yeah. And we've we've always had an amazing team and we've always had those skills in the team that were probably underutilised. Yeah. Um, and now we're, you know, trying to give all of our people that opportunity. But we do, um, we have people with specialist experience now in community engagement and community development. And our whole philosophy is about enabling community-led change. And so people that can kind of sit alongside communities and be part of their thinking, but not, um, you know, it's that sort of insider-outsider. You can kind of be a helpful ally um, in their thinking 
and then the ability to actually help them leverage resources to turn whatever they're wanting to do into action. Um, But it is a really unique skill set and it doesn't come from one place. You know, we have really diverse backgrounds in the organisation, artists and theatre performers and teachers and social workers and, you know, you name it. Um, No one's come from philanthropy, I can say that, um, because no one ever really does. (laughs) A pretty niche area. Yeah, we've we've grown through COVID as well, which was an interesting thing to do. So most of our growth occurred when the majority of us were working in lockdown virtually, which was a pretty um, interesting way to grow. And I I think it's had more from the sense of organisational process and and what happened to FRRR, that was actually probably a really good way because we were all it was a level playing field, so to speak. We were all kind of in the, virtually the same boat, apart from people in WA, <laughs> you know, walking free and easy around their state. Yes. Um, but we were all on screen. Yeah. Yeah. There were no sort of some people in the office, some people offline. It was, you know, we were very much connecting and, and we were able to build um, an environment, I think, that enabled everybody, you know, or most people to sort of participate and get to know each other um, and and kind of, foster an environment that people felt like they were stepping into something that everyone was experiencing for the first time. Which, yeah, which is really interesting, isn't it? How has that changed as some people have come back to the office? Because I, I, your team will be sort of scattered, I presume, across Australia. Yeah, yeah. And that has been one of the upsides is um, we have moved to quite a hybrid team and we've got a lot of people based all over the country from the top of Queensland down mm. um, and now one person in WA which is terrific um, yeah. makes it fun for our 9 30 meetings when it's oh, 6 30 in the morning for them <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, so that a degree of complexity to everything else aren't I yeah that's right uh, but I think we've still got even our office-based people still work from home a bit that's become something that is a flexible option and it works you know, when it works, it works. So don't, you know, don't mess with it is my sort of philosophy. <laughs> yeah. um, we still have, uh, we have a daily 9.30am whole team check-in, um, which some organisations did that through the pandemic and haven't necessarily kept that. We've really made a point of keeping it. Yeah. Um, and it is because of that connection that it's possible that there are people in our organisation who would not see others or have visibility of the broader team, if not for those. And they're structured and we have um, thematics and um, it's really about cross-organisational sharing of practice and um, outcomes. We get external speakers to come and um, grant partners to come and present about their outcomes and that sort of thing. So it's a real, um, that's been, I think, a strength. Mm. Uh, And we do um, speed dating sessions and things like that where we make sure we get to know each other in a, a because we're not at the water cooler, we're not making cups yeah. of tea together. Yeah. Um, so I think it's been positive, but that that sort of maintaining connection in an organisation that is so relational is really important and you've got to find new ways all the time of keeping it fresh. Yes, and I think that's the big challenge, isn't it? Um, and although you're, you're in a very exciting phase, I imagine, for the organisation, because you're doing a lot, so presumably your team in the field are very engaged with what's happening. Mm. But yes, I mean, this is the real challenge of hybrid, isn't it? Not just the us versus them, the people in the field and people in the office, but keeping people connected with your vision and what you're doing. Yeah, that's right. And and because we still have people who just do the grant administration, as you say, in the office, and we have people who are 
on the ground and, you know, there's a fair degree of FOMO that happens when you <laughs> hear about the grass is greener type thing. But it's, yeah, um, it's yeah I mean, it's, it's a really circular kind of um, process because even those who are answering the phones are not necessarily in the field, so to speak, or those who are processing some of the paperwork side of things or processing the grant payments. Yeah. For them to get the insight that our people in the field bring into the team because they bring the depth and the colour and, the, you know, they, they bring back the commentary and the insights um, and, and obviously the people that actually come and speak to us um, adds meaning to the work of those who are not necessarily doing the direct front-facing work and it gives them context and meaning. And so there is that connection to purpose that sort of filters through and there's a very strong sense of why we do what we do across that RRR. Um, despite different backgrounds and different roles, everybody knows it's, you know, everyone's there with the purpose of really strengthening rural Australia. Yes. So that why is really strong for people. It is, yeah. And there's that's the glue for us and it's possibly the, the way for a lot of not-for-profit organisations. Um, yeah. And harnessing that energy Um in a way that furthers the organisation's outcomes but gives people a sense of satisfaction and growth. Um, yeah. It's, you know, I guess where a lot of the work is internally. Oh, and, and presumably your work. I wanted to ask you a little bit about influence because that, partly that is about influence, but you need to influence a whole lot of different um, stakeholders, for want of a better word. And I wonder what sort of advice you would give other leaders around those those skills and for people looking to build their influencing skills what have you learned along the way what what works for you yeah it, it can be one of those fraught areas I think you either lean into it or you feel a bit uncomfortable about it sometimes mm -hmm. um, and I've definitely been both over time I think I mean there's Influence and authority and power are all kind of interesting concepts. Aren't they? They're different, but they're related. And sometimes it's hard to sort of distinguish um, what, what you need because you need each of those in different contexts. So um, I think about it as, um, as really anchoring to purpose. So what I actually in my job exist to do is advocate for the voices of rural communities to try to influence better resourcing and more appropriate funding to go to rural communities in, you know, a whole array of contexts. And that is to a range of audiences. Um, and I, I think what comes, um, when it works best, the things that are at play are, and this sounds awfully, um, uh, you know, not trite, but sort of obvious, um, but authenticity, like really, if you're there just with that purpose, and if you keep that in mind, and the minute you start worrying about whether you seem like you're doing the right thing or whether you look, you know, all those things that can play, um, it, it sort of dilutes pretty quickly. So that, you know. That second it, guessing of yourself in a way. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So just really trusting that you know what you're talking about. That's mm -hmm. what's built up over time is I've got enough um, knowledge. And the other thing is recognising that, well, in a role like mine, people want me to influence them. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. think that I hold knowledge that they need to help them. So, you know, it's kind of a shifting of the framing to thinking about the helpfulness of what I've got to offer. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, not everything needs to be drastically changed or influenced. It's always about what can I contribute here that might improve someone's perspective or might shift 
a policy framing or, you know, it can be across the spectrum, but it really is about, for me, that mental model of, you know, I can contribute something and I should, and I'm expected to and kind of asked to. So, yeah, um, and that that's sort of where it gets tricky with notions of authority and power. So, um, you know, there are some environments where I have a lot of authority as far as having, I'm authorised to speak in a certain way, I'm authorised to give particular um, information or advice or recommendations and there are others that I'm less authorised to do that and you know equally um, we all carry power in a different way and we all you know I'm acutely aware whenever I walk into a rural community as the CEO of FRRR you know I would be seen as having a lot of power even though I might not feel it yeah. and so I need to be aware of that and that sort of influencing piece is what you know, sometimes people want you to use your power in a certain way and you've got to weigh up whether that's right, it's appropriate, is it for the right reasons? Um, so that, that's the sort of the messiness of influencing as well, I think. But being yes. mindful of those things helps. And going back to your point about women sort of stepping up into leadership roles, do you see women less inclined to sort of use their influence? It's an interesting question and it might be about the way that women use their influence. I think, um, and I do hope it's changing and I do feel like it is, but maybe I'm just in sectors where I experience it in a <laughs> more progressive way, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there, there is there's still a bit of stigma around women exercising influence mm. and if they do it in certain ways, they can get cut down pretty quickly and pretty nastily and it, you see it in the political arena in particular yeah. and sometimes in the corporate arena and I, I think we haven't quite worked that out as far as how to safely lead and influence um, because I, I hear a lot about you know the you kind of need the installation around you or you need your support crew and um, there's a lot of risk sometimes in stepping out particularly if you have to say things that are not popular Yes, they don't go with the accepted narrative that's out there. Mm. Yes. Yeah. It's really interesting, isn't it? And I think this idea that we don't step into leadership unless we feel like we've got all of the capabilities for that, unless we tick all of the boxes. I wonder whether women struggle to influence unless they feel like they've got all the answers in a way. Yeah. Instead of feeling they can just add something to the conversation. I would totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, and there's that, um, uh, I mean, this is just an experience of someone that I do a bit of mentoring and, and coaching with. Um, we were talking about what happens if you're asked a question that you don't know the answer to in a public forum. Yeah. You know, why is that such a concern for us? Yes. <laughs> no one knows. Everyone's going to get a question they don't know the answer to. We're like, well, you know, maybe we replay it with a question about curiosity. You know, I don't actually have the answer, but I wonder who else might, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really interesting that that mental block, um, and I don't know if it comes from that sense of what happens if we get it wrong, um, because the consequences can be pretty heavy um, in in the bigger picture sense for women. Yes, and the more public you are, the bigger the consequences can seem. Too, yeah, it? yeah, and those micro moments where you might be put in a position where you don't have the answers um, may feel like a bigger risk than it is um, yeah. potentially, but it's. Yeah, I do hope it's shifting and I, I do feel there are forums and there are particular parts of different sectors where it is definitely different and then there are others where obviously there's a lot um, at play and a lot to um, 
There's a lot to preserve for some. It, yes, gosh, I, I agree with you. I think there is still, we've still got a way to go in some arenas around that. Can you tell me some of the challenges you've faced, particularly, I guess, as the CEO since 2015, around leadership? Um, well, I'm pausing because it's a, you know, where do I start? Kind yeah. of where do I end? <laughs> Um, I mean, in, in part, as far as the organisation goes, uh, I've mentioned earlier having built a leadership team in the last couple of years and yeah. the difference between leading and managing, we all kind of know the theory that it's different and you need to do both um, in the kind of technical skills and the more adaptive sort of leading skills. Um, and I think for smaller organisations, that's really hard. So I probably spent the first five years carrying a huge amount as both an operational manager and a leader. And that's that's the case for a lot of smaller not-for-profit organisations that don't have that extra layer of management support. So that's, I think, as, as far as leading goes, that limitation is really challenging because it keeps you in the business rather than on the business. Mm. And it makes it hard to have the leadership thinking and have the, the sort of more expansive, externalised scanning kind of mindset that you really need in order to lead an organisation and um, and make sure you're slightly ahead of the curve as things are coming. So that's certainly yes. a challenge. Um, that and I think to get up out of the business a little bit and, you know, yeah. balcony and see the dance floor sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and developing people to, to step in to that sort of more um, senior thinking um, is really important so and that just takes time and it takes hard work and it's you don't always get it right you know I've had lots of two steps back um, you know yeah. a couple of steps forward a few steps back where you sort of have to ebb and flow and I think that that that's just really challenging in the CEO role to be able to maintain your focus on future while while you're trying to get an organization to a place where um, it can be more sustainable and, and more robust I suppose. Um, and you've obviously done a magnificent job in that the organisation has grown exponentially. You are building capacity in all sorts of communities and your team is now so much bigger and presumably more diverse. Well, from what you're saying, you know, you've got that diversity across the team with different skills and backgrounds. I imagine there's a challenge in bringing some of that together as well because much as we love diversity and we need it and it, it's what drives innovation, it can also be a challenge bringing those different viewpoints and different backgrounds together. Yes. I mean, it's part of the fun of trying to, um, you know, it's kind of like cooking up a recipe and going, I wonder how we're going to go. Um, <laughs> Let's throw this in now. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it doesn't always work. And, you know, you, you often have to add a few more ingredients or, you know, adjust yeah. the recipe slightly. Um, but I, I think what... The interesting thing about FRIR, I, I think, is that it's kind of like a microcosm of, of the communities we work in, um, in some ways, you know. And so I, I often think about the mirroring effects that can happen in our organisation, and we have to be careful about that because sometimes we just mirror what is happening in the communities we're working with as far as constantly reacting to disruptions, constantly having to, um, you know, find the next bit of funding or, you know, the same sorts of patterns that exist um, in our communities. And often we are directly affected 
based on people living and breathing and um, existing in remote and rural Australia. Yeah. Um, and so bringing a team together, we deliberately actually try to have something that looks and feels like um, the communities that we work in. And that, you know, it's the same. You try and run a workshop in a community and come to a shared um, position on something and it, it takes a whole bunch of iterative conversations and you have to get input from different places and you have to make sure that you've thought about the different perspectives and valued those. And um, I guess that's how we try to approach it. Um, and it's a pretty democratic sort of environment. But again, it, it does come back to the shared purpose and that we have a very shared position on why. And our strategy is um, it's sort of big picture enough and pretty agile, but it's something that everyone can generally see themselves in. Um, and so no matter no matter what your background, you bring something. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And yes, and, and what you're describing is this sort of approach of no assumptions of actually being open to whatever comes and questioning things. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's um, not easy to always do. And some people want more certainty than that. <laughs> Um, I want to move no, along a bit quicker than that often too, presumably. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we've got new people joining the team all the time. You know, you always, once you get to a certain size, you, you have movement on yeah. a pretty regular basis in one way or another. And so getting to a point where we're comfortable with that, that wasn't easy for a while. Yes. Um, you know, some people are like, I'm very tired of inducting people. <laughs> Um, yeah. And I'm very tired of, you know, having to kind of go through this whole process um, again. again and again. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's now become a bit normal. It's not, we didn't, like, we scaled up quite quickly um, during COVID. So now it's not as intensive and not as regular, but it's still regular enough that people kind of know, okay, you know, we don't have a team of people who have been here for 10 years. It's going to be a bit more, um, a bit more sort of fluid than that. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, it wasn't comfortable for a while and now it's kind of just what it is and there's a much more of a how do we make sure that those new people come into the fold and that mm. we don't make assumptions about what they might know or um, need to know. So, it's, yeah, it's such about the culture really. Isn't it interesting when you look back on what wasn't that long ago, you know, coming through COVID and the things that seemed uncomfortable at the time, but it doesn't take us long to find a rhythm with these things. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, and the, I mean that whole period was all of it was uncomfortable. Yes, it wasn't, that's <laughs> we right. did all of the uncomfortable things yeah. at once. Um, yeah. It was just like a heightened. We suddenly did everything online, and you know, a week earlier we had been having all of our staff meetings in person together in Bendigo, and then suddenly we weren't, and we've never done it again. Yes, uh, isn't that interesting? Yes, yeah, so that's fundamentally changed the way the team meets and gathers and communicates. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which is really, um, you know, you have to acknowledge the loss and the grief mm. that can come with that, and we have to, we've had to create a bit of space to enable that to be expressed. Um, you can't just say yes, yes, but we've let's move on. And that's that goes with any change, doesn't it? You, totally. You know, and as you say, you found ways to have those small conversations that are just such a natural part of getting together in the same space. But finding ways to do that when you have a hybrid model, I think, is much more challenging, but mm -hmm. so important. It is, yeah. Yeah, and we occasionally have conversations about do we really need these morning meetings anymore? Um, yes. And I, I'm very firmly of the view that we do, and we might need to change them up. Yeah. Know, 
because yeah. you don't want to just turn up in the morning and, and not do something together. But um, that's I think that's paid off and that continues to be good. Which is fantastic. You um, you mentioned you live in Malden, which is a beautiful town. What do you do when you're not being the CEO of FRR? <laughs> People do ask me this periodically, and I say there's not much of that time. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, but you know, we um, we've got two um, teenagers, call yeah. them. Yeah. Um, so we're involved in the um, you know the footy club and the netball club, and we do that sort of community stuff. Um, and we've got a beautiful group of friends who all of our kids are friends, so we've got you know space to have fun and yeah. sort of you know get together. Um, and then you know we're just like so many people in a perpetual state of renovation, so there's always oh. um, <laughs> uh, which is fine. My husband and I love it, and um, well, no, love it's probably a bit strong, but um, we love the place and we it feels like a restoration that we're you know enjoying um, the kind of stewardship of this property that we have and the, the house that we have which was built by the owners that we bought it from oh, by hand yeah. so we kind of we like to stick home and work in the garden and play with the animals you know we've got yeah. 23 acres which is just enough to muck around in but not too much to overwhelm us <laughs> totally yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, that's lovely yes and perfect sort of downtime really yeah and it is what we well I um generally need because work life is pretty intense and there's a lot of people time and there's a lot of big issues and big thinking and um, as you said earlier engaging with lots of different stakeholders so um, you know my favorite downtime is just really being here at home and switching off a bit and just re-immersing in the place and um, you know if I make it into town for a cuppa that's lovely. <laughs> it's such a nice thing is I know I'm the guy I love pottering in the garden and I find mm. yes you can sort of go into a different headspace when you're just in your space, not having yeah. to deal with other people. Yeah, that's right. Um, just before we finish, I just wanted to ask you, are there three things or even maybe less than three, maybe more, that you wish you'd known before you launched into this leadership role particularly? Is there advice you'd give yourself if you could go back? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the... Um, the expectations that I had of myself of what leadership looked like were pretty unrealistic um, and were, you know, I, I could have been a lot kinder to myself. I, I thought that it needed to look like something, but it really doesn't. I didn't understand. And maybe you don't learn this until you experience it. I don't know. Um, but I really had to find my authentic style and that was a rough road to find you know to, to then sort of get to the end and go oh is that all <laughs> I just had to kind of let all that other stuff go yes. um, let all those expectations go but that's really um the sooner you can kind of get to that place mm. of just being comfortable with turning up and having enough is kind of the piece and having a leadership mindset is different and that ability to kind of really just um not it's like depersonalizing it a little bit, you know. Yeah. Um, you never connect, disconnect yourself, but there's also a, you know, this is not about me. You know, leadership yes. in this sort of really odd way is not about me. It's so easy to take it all on as mm. though it's all about you, though, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you're carrying um, so everything for everyone. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which is Absolutely. really difficult. Mm. It's very hard, yeah. So that would be, I think, the the main one and, you know, just trusting that um, 
you know, that kind of reframing that people want you to do well. Yeah. They want you to lead and they they actually seek, they're seeking you to show up in a particular way and that's okay. That's a really good thing. And so it's not about the anxiety of how you might bring yourself to something. It's about the kind of comfort that, um, well, particularly in a positional role yeah. um, of leadership, that's kind of um, you just need to turn up and be what you are and bring what you have and that's actually all that you need to do. Which is exactly what you're doing. And you're doing it so impressively now. I can't tell you how I love, as I say, following the progress of FRR. And I see things that you're doing in the community all over the place, um, you know, up the east coast of Australia, particularly when I'm traveling. And I love that. I love seeing mm -hmm. the projects that you're involved in. And I think this idea that you're building capability, you're building capacity in communities is such an important one. Um, we need, we need that leadership out in our community so yes look thank you so much for talking with me i've loved it uh, and hopefully we can do this again at some stage down the track yeah who knows what will have happened exactly <laughs> <laughs> thank you Matt. it's been lovely thank okay. you Thanks for joining us on this episode. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave us a rating, comment and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to recommend us to a friend. We also love hearing suggestions for topics or guest speakers that you would love to hear from. The best way to reach us to give us those suggestions is over on our Facebook page. Simply head to Facebook and search Grow Your Influence. See you there.